Good evening to you all. So for the last six weeks, or in some cases three months or so, you've been here on retreat, and it's been a very different environment than the one in which you usually exist. You may have noticed that. (laughs) So, you know, when we're on retreat, the following features are very noticeable. Silence, no eye contact, vegetarian meals, no sex, simple rooms, uh, maybe no eating after the midday meal, no wearing of scented products, no TV, no radio, no internet, little or no contact with uh, friends and family. You know, no nothing, really. So in some ways, you've been a little bit like monks and nuns. And some of you have the haircuts to prove it. (laughs) So you came here to do this intensive meditation practice in an environment that was specifically designed to be optimal for the purpose for which you came. You've gotten a lot of teaching and a lot of access to teachers and soon this experience will change. So at some point, often it's about now, um, the thought arises, how will I take this home? How will I take this home? And sometimes this, which you want to take home, is meant the whole retreat ethos, you know, the whole thing. The special conditions, the whole orientation to silence and meditation and and in the solitude uh, which has been here. And you might think that that's the real deal, you know, that's the real deal. That's that's the real practice is kind of like this, uh, these types of conditions, this this daily schedule and all the rest of it. And maybe you think that's the only way you could practice and get benefit. But you would be mistaken in this. The Buddha himself didn't see it that way. He had a much broader and more inclusive view of the whole human endeavor and where work could be done to bring about the changes that evolve in the direction of our happiness and well-being. Bhikkhu Bodhi says about uh, the Buddha... The function of a Buddha is to discover, realize, and proclaim the Dharma in its full range and depth. And this involves a comprehensive understanding of the varied applications of the Dharma in all its multiple dimensions. A Buddha not only penetrates to the unconditioned state of perfect bliss that lies beyond samsara, outside the pale of birth, aging, and death, He not only proclaims that path to full enlightenment and final liberation, but he also illuminates the many ways that Dharma applies to the complex conditions of human life for people still immersed in the world. He also illumines the many ways that Dharma applies to the complex conditions of human life 
for people still immersed in the world. So as we know, you know, this Buddha had a mind of great power and a full range of skillful means, right? On the night of enlightenment, his enlightenment, he talks about what was involved in waking up fully and it was very much insight into causes and conditions and how they work together and what led to what on many different levels. It was this uh, insight or this seeing into how reality functions that was really the linchpin for him coming to an understanding of how to undo suffering. His own awakening occurred as a consequence of observation of seeing very deeply into causation and to see how things arise, what actions lead to what kind of outcomes. And understanding this on very deep levels, he saw the path that led to complete liberation from greed, hatred, and delusion. And he saw a lot of other things too. He saw not only the end of the path, but he saw the progress along the path. And he talked about the whole path, not just the end stages of the path. And he taught this path with many different iterations for the rest of his life after his awakening. He taught it to all kinds of people, to monks and nuns and kings and courtesans and widows and kids and businessmen warriors and wives and mothers and Brahmins and members of the lowest social classes of the time. And he taught all people in a way that was appropriate for their situation and responsive to their specific inquiries. Right? So he took them where they were, where they were starting. You know, what the question, the deepest question that they had that was right at the front of their mind or coming from the deepest place in their heart And when they asked it, he would talk to that. He would frame it, you know, within the broad framework of his understanding, but he would respond most often to what they asked. And he was responsive to their particular inquiries, at least in part because he was a master of skillful means and not an indoctrinator. So in emphasizing wisdom as key to awakening, he didn't encourage people to blind faith based on what he said or on blind faith in him. It was much more nuanced than that. And because he saw, you know, people are where they are, they're interested in what they're interested in because of causes and conditions, some of which he found in you know, the full arc of their existence, not just the immediate presence, but perhaps in past lives or previous life experience. He realized that not everyone should or could be a monk or a nun. It wasn't possible or necessary. And in fact, if you think about how the whole uh, structure of the fourfold sangha is... If everyone had been a renunciate, it's quite possible the order of renunciates and the teachings that the renunciates uh, were primarily responsible for carrying would have died out. You know, the teaching structure requires the support of lay people on a day-by-day basis 
their day-by-day support and involvement, as well as their support and involvement over time. And if there hadn't been the support of a number of wealthy and not-so-wealthy individuals in the Buddha's time, it's quite possible we wouldn't be here today. If you think about it, you know, celibate monastics die out every generation, right? They're not reproducing by nature. So the next generation always comes forward from the lay community, right? So it's not uh, a binary, right? It's not two separate things, this whole system. Now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, common uh, misunderstandings of the Buddhist practice path. And just to start by saying that, you know, for we Westerners who are, you know, convert Buddhists or maybe we're second generation or maybe, maybe we're ethnic Buddhist in heritage, but we live in the West and haven't had necessarily a lot of direct access to the teachings in their traditional sense. We very often lack any understanding of the cultural context of the teachings. So we can get the wrong idea fairly easily and not know it. For instance, we may think that the whole thing is about meditation and the silence that is, you know, part of uh, meditative environments. And if we're introduced to Buddhism through meditation, which is very often how it happens, at least within this uh, community of insight practitioners, um, especially if we're introduced through silent retreat, we can develop a set of assumptions. We, for instance, may assume that uh, monks and nuns are all about meditation, You may be surprised to know that many, many of them, perhaps most of them, don't meditate at all. Ooh. Is that a surprise? You know, and that the role in the community uh, very often is much more geared towards kind of pastoral care for the local community, teaching of the children, you know, performing, uh, you know, doing teaching, and that kind of thing, doing, you know, life cycle uh, rites and rituals, just similar in some ways to what you might think of as the role of a rabbi or the role of a pastor. So that's a big part of their role in the community, their service back to the community, sometimes literally uh, being the people that offer primary education to children in the community, you know, teach them. But we don't necessarily know that because we come in at it through a different door. And we might assume, for instance, that the retreat model is the way that we should try to live as lay people in daily life. And, you know, there are obvious problems with this because the way we are in retreat is at variance with the world we normally live in, most of us. I mean, like, way at variance, right? Like, not even close. So essentially, we would, you know, to try to hold on to that in that kind of way, we would be trying to live like quasi-monastics 
in a culture which doesn't understand or support it. And, you know, for some people this is a fit. And some people can do it and want to do it and thrive on it and do do it. And it's people who, for, for whom it's a fit and who are fully committed and resonant with this style. And those, those people can pull it off. But for many people, it doesn't work. And if we think that's the only way, then we're making a false binary out of things. And we can wind up making a problem out of things where it need not exist. Creating a kind of dualism um, that really isn't helpful. And this dualism is just an idea we kind of pulled out of someplace, you know. And there are reasons that we have this confusion too, uh, besides the fact that we don't, you know, have a lot of direct uh, connection with uh, traditional uh, practice as it's uh, practiced in Southeast Asia. And one reason that we might think um, that it all kind of bends to meditation and silence and retreat and, and that is that the, the monastic order has really been uh, foundational or fundamental in preserving all of the Buddha's teachings. You know, and this has really been one of their great gifts to humanity, the way that's been carried on within that monastic setting, you know, carried from mind to mind you know, in the early, earliest days by people who were reciters who would like literally uh, memorize all the scriptures and recite them, and recite them, and teach other people to recite them, and recite them, so that there was always somebody who fully knew them, and people who were in training to remember them, to carry them on from generation to generation. A mammoth uh, undertaking, and an incredible amount of fidelity and dedication in order to, to keep this going for 2,600 years. But there also was kind of a downside uh, to the fact that this was carried primarily through the monastic uh, culture, which is that that kind of method of transmission kind of de-emphasized the preservation of lay teachings or teachings that were directly um, directed towards uh, people who are non-monastic. And it's likely that many of these teachings offered to lay people haven't come forward, although some have. And one of the other reasons that you may not be aware that there there are teachings that are directed specifically to lay people is that many of the teachings that do exist aren't routinely taught by Western teachers. And instead, you know, very often we emphasize teachings that are addressed to monastics primarily. And why? Because in this kind of setting where we're doing this kind of practice, you know, we're going, if we're going for the gold, we're going for complete liberation. We're going for the highest training in that kind of sense. The teachings to the monastics are directly pertinent to this environment and this practice in the way that we're doing it here. But, you know, we're not monastics. And so then the question is, well, you know, once we're no, no longer in the secluded environment, what, what is pertinent? 
And there'll be a lot of conversation about this, you know, over the, the next few days here. But I just want to open up some of the conversation about this tonight and give you a little bit of potpourri of some of the teachings um, specifically addressed to lay people that you might find in, of interest. But to, to focus on uh, the main question now, right now, is what remains to practice with after we let go of the special circumstances that we have here? What's left? Everything? (laughs) So all the fields of practice in the Eightfold Path remain. It's an eightfold path, right? Not a twofold path. It's not a, a wise mindfulness and wise concentration. Those are the seven and eight. It's not just that. There's the, all the other ones. The Dharma remains, of course, the lawful nature of how things are. Those, that lawful nature doesn't change in any way when you step outside the door here. Skillful and unskillful remains. Karma remains. The three characteristics of existence remain, right? Which can which des- describe all conditioned things: impermanence, not self, unsatisfactoriness, still pertains. The four foundations of mindfulness remain. Dana remains, the precepts remain, the Brahma Viharas remain, both the attitudes and the practices. Mindfulness remains, possibly. Right? And there'll be a lot of talk about that later on. Meditation remains, possibly. So all the raw materials for practice are still there. But now, when you move more into the uh, dimensions of a lay life, things are in motion, right? There's a more open field. It's not closed off in the same way that it is here. So where retreat practice, you could say, is narrow but deep, Lay practice is broader and more interactive, and its social dimension is more visible. So it's different. It's not inferior. It's just different. And in other ways, words, you could say it's it's uh, the outbreath. <laughs> you know, it's the outbreath, the chance to actually apply what we've learned on the cushion and to integrate the understanding. Uh, that we've gained with activity, to bring it into play. And to do that will test your understanding and commitment to the whole process of bhavana. So one thing that we can do as part of this, and I'm going to spend the rest of the, the talk kind of speaking to this particular point, is we can consider integrating, specifically integrating, the Buddhist teachings for lay people 
you know, seeing it as a worthy field of investigation. Because although we can and should take what's skillful from the retreat model, there are other resources that are also relevant. And when I was giving the talk, um, was it only Friday? Was I, when I was giving the talk on uh, the problem with greed, you know, I tried to emphasize in the talk that even though you know, being uh, uh, magnetized into craving is unskillful, um, there's no fight with pleasant. <laughs> pleasant is fine. Pleasant is pleasant. And the Buddha himself acknowledged that relative happiness is a good and worthy thing. And he didn't denigrate it at all. And in fact, he taught people how to attain it. You know, I'm not saying he taught that this is the highest happiness. You know, he continually aimed towards the highest goal, which is the complete liberation from samsara. You know, he saw the limitations of... uh, worldly happiness, which are exactly the same limitations that are shared by everything that's conditioned. But he saw worldly happiness as a positive. Now obviously the teachings of Dana and Sila and the Brahma Viharas, for, uh, for instance, are clearly applicable teachings for lay people. But you might be surprised to know that there are other specific teachings that might be of use to you and of interest to you. And I wanted to encourage you to explore these. So here's the question, well, how do you find these teachings? And it's, uh, until relatively recently, it's kind of been a bit of a a job because um, the teachings addressed to lay people aren't any single place in the Buddhist canon. They're not found in one place. They're scattered around in various texts. But there is a book, uh, relatively new, I think it came out maybe 2009 or something, that pulls them together, organizes them by topic, and gives uh, an accessible presentation of them for Western audiences. And this book is called... uh, the Buddha's Teachings on Prosperity. And it's uh, put together by a Sri Lankan monk, uh, Bhikkhu Basnagoda Rahula. And it's from Wisdom Press. And I'll, we'll, we'll probably do some kind of book list or something for you, and I'll make sure I put that on there. But he, here's a sampler of the Buddha. This is the Buddha in the numerical discourses. So he says... Wise lay people improve two kinds of skills. First, they develop the ability to obtain new wealth and to secure their acquired wealth. Next, they learn how to differentiate between wholesome and unwholesome conduct and how to follow a wholesome way of life. Lay followers of my teachings secure a tenfold improvement in their external progress They develop skill to obtain more property, increase wealth, improve family relationships, establish a strong workforce, and obtain more four-footed animals. If that's a concern of yours. In their inner growth, 
My lay followers develop confidence in their spiritual path, discipline themselves, acquire more knowledge, practice generosity, and gain wisdom. So I'm going to give you a little sampler of some of these teachings. Um, And for this too, I'm pulling from uh, an anthology of discourses edited by Bhikkhu Bodhi called In the Buddha's Words, which is also a very fine book. So on the topic of how to choose close associates, he, the Buddha really emphasized the importance of the right choice of people uh, for close connection. So understanding that when people are compatible, they can be a great support and encouragement and even safeguard uh, for you and the wrong kind of associations can be problematic. Um, At one point he says that uh, undisciplined and morally corrupt people can be, quote, a channel through which wealth disappears. So, you know, on this point of kind of uh, the the desirability or value of matching up with somebody... uh, on the developmental level. He talks about... uh, This is from the Anguttara Nikaya. He talks about different kinds of marriages. Okay. On one occasion, the Blessed One was traveling along the highway, and a number of householders and their wives were traveling along the same road. Then the Blessed One left the road and sat down on a seat at the foot of a tree. The householders and their wives saw the Blessed One sitting there and approached him. Having paid homage to him, they sat down to one side, and the Blessed One then said to them, Householders, there are four kinds of marriages. What for? A wretch lives together with a wretch. A wretch lives together with a goddess. A god lives together with a wretch. A god lives together with a goddess. And how does a wretch live together with a wretch? Here, householders, the husband is one who destroys life, takes what's not given, engages in sexual misconduct, speaks falsely and indulges in wine, liquor, and intoxicants, the basis for negligence. He's immoral of bad character. He dwells at home with a heart obsessed by the stain of stinginess. He abuses and reviles ascetics and Brahmins. And his wife is exactly the same in all respects, in such a way that a wretch lives together with a wretch. In other words, they're evenly matched. And how does a wretch live together with a goddess? Here, householders, the husband is the one who destroys life, who abuses and reviles ascetics and Brahmins. But his wife is one who abstains from the destruction of life, from wines, liquor, and intoxicants. She is virtuous of good character. She dwells at home with a heart free from the stain of stinginess. She does not abuse or revile ascetics and Brahmins. In such a way, a wretch lives together with a goddess. And how does a god live together with a wretch? Here, householders, the husband is one who abstains from the destruction of life, who does not abuse or revile ascetics and Brahmins. But his wife is one who destroys life, who abuses and reviles ascetics and Brahmins. 
It is in such a way a god lives together with a wretch. And how does a god live together with a goddess? Here, householders, the husband is one who abstains from the destruction of life, from wine, liquor, and intoxicants. He is virtuous of good character. He dwells at home with a heart free from the stain of stinginess. He does not abuse or revile ascetics and Brahmins, and his wife is exactly the same in all respects. It is in such a way that a god lives together with a goddess. These householders are the four kinds of marriages. So, you know, the Buddha also gives specific advice as to criteria in selecting close associates. And part of what, what he does is he leaves aside unproven traditional criteria. So, for instance, caste didn't count, class didn't count, race didn't count, creed didn't count, gender didn't count. In the Dhammapada, um, there's a section where the Buddha talks uh, about uh, Brahmins and what makes someone a Brahmin. And you know, at, that, at this period of time, uh, the, there was a class system uh, on the subcontinent. It had calcified into the full-blown caste system that it later became, but certainly the elements uh, were there and in place. And the idea among the Brahmin class that there was like an inborn or inbred uh, superiority that uh, had its roots in uh, something they uh, believed they had done in the past to you know award them that superior status when, but when the Buddha talks about it in the Dhammapada he goes through a whole long riff of him I call Brahman now him I call Brahman that dot 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 basically pointing to uh, the morality, the spiritual development, the goodness of someone as being the criteria that would warrant him being seen as someone of a, a superior nature, not what you're born to. Now, there's a, a, an interesting... Uh, uh, conversation that the Buddha had uh, with a particular couple. This is continuing on this conversation about m- matching up with uh, somebody who's uh, compatible, who's a peer in some sort of way. And uh, this is a very interesting one because he was approached by a married couple. And when they approached him, what they said was, we want to know how we can continue to be together in the next life. Now, you might think he would say, oh, forget all that, you know, why, why do you want to continue it? You know, you should strive for nibbana, you should not be attached to this person, you should, you know, not be aiming your practice in that kind of way. But he didn't say that at all. I, and I found that very interesting, actually, that he didn't, didn't say that. And why didn't he say that? My theory is that he saw that these people were already, uh, as you'll see in this 
this conversation with them. These people were already on uh, the road to uh, liberation. You know, their bhavana was uh, was already uh, being developed, and many of the paramis and other beautiful qualities of heart were already present there and were being strengthened all the time uh, through their association with each other. So anyway, this is what he says. Um, On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling in the deer park. One morning, he dressed, took his upper robe and bowl, and went to the dwelling of the householder, Nakulapita. Having arrived there, he sat down in the seat prepared for him, and then the householder and the housewife, Nakulamata, approached the Blessed One and, after paying homage, sat down to one side. So seated, the householder said to the Blessed One, Venerable sir, ever since the young housewife was brought home to me when I was too, still too young, I am not aware of having wronged her even in my thoughts, still less in my deeds. Our wishes to be together in one another's sight so long as this life lasts and in the future life as well. Then the housewife addressed the Blessed One thus, Venerable sir, ever since I was taken to the home of my young husband, While being a young girl myself, I am not aware of having wronged him even in my thoughts, still less in my deeds. Our wish is to be in one another's sight so long as this life lasts and in the future life as well. And then the Blessed One said, If householders, both wife and husband, wish to be in one another's sight so long as this life lasts and the future life as well, they should have the same faith, the same moral discipline, the same generosity, the same wisdom, then they will be in one another's sight so long as this life lasts and in the future life as well. And then there's a riff here. When both are faithful and generous, self-restrained of righteous living, they come together as husband and wife full of love for each other. Many blessings come their way. They dwell together in happiness. Their enemies are left dejected when both are equal in virtue. Having lived by Dhamma in this world, the same in virtue and observance, they rejoice after death in the Deva world, enjoying abundant happiness. So in this, you know, he was basically saying, you know, if you're you're considering compatibility with a closely connected person, if there's a similar uh, faith or confidence in spiritual development, that can be a match. In other words, there's value there for bhavana. doesn't have to be identical or specific, but you know, it shouldn't be contradictory. Uh, similar respect for uh, sila, uh, kind of on the same page ethically. Uh, similar respect for humanistic practices, uh, you know, dana and the and the rest of it. Uh, similar level of wisdom. So that's how not to uh, be together with a wretch.
So when the Buddha was talking about four types of happiness, he said something like, this is titled, A Family Man's Happiness. The Blessed One said to the householder, Anathapindika, there are householder these four kinds of happiness which may be achieved by a layperson who enjoys sensual pleasures depending on time and occasion. What for? The happiness of possession, the happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of freedom from debt, and the happiness of blamelessness. And what householder is the happiness of possession? Here a family man possesses wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained. When he thinks, I possess wealth acquired by energetic striving, righteously gained, he experienced happiness and joy, and this is called the happiness of possession. In what householder is the happiness of enjoyment? Here with the wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, Righteous wealth righteously gained. A family man enjoys his wealth and does meritorious deeds. And then he thinks, with the wealth acquired by energetic striving, righteously gained, I enjoy my wealth and do meritorious deeds. He experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness of enjoyment. So in other words, dana is a source of happiness. In what householder is the happiness of freedom from debt? Here a family man is not indebted to anyone to any degree, whether small or large. When he thinks I'm not indebted to anyone to any degree, whether small or large, he experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness of freedom from debt. In what householder is the happiness of blamelessness? Here householder, a noble disciple, is endowed with blameless conduct of body, speech, and mind. When he thinks I'm endowed with blamelessness, blameless conduct of body, speech, and mind, he experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness of blamelessness. These householders are the four kinds of happiness that a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures may achieve depending on time and occasion. So that's interesting. He kind of alternates uh, material success with... The first is, you know, accumulation. You've accumulated some wealth righteously gained. That makes you happy. Then he talks about the happiness you get by sharing it, by giving it, a, giving it away um, and doing meritorious deeds with it. Then he talks about freedom from debt and how that creates a kind of happiness in the mind. And then he talks about uh, reflecting on uh, your own sila, and seeing that it's strong, that you're blameless, and that the happiness that arises in the mind there. So it's an interweaving of material happiness with the kind of happiness that comes from uh, wise, wise attention, wise view, in the use of resources, in the allocation of life energy. Here's one about uh, how to become become successful and happy now and in the next life. (laughs) 
present welfare and future welfare. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Kolians. A Kolian family man approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, and sat down to one side. And so seated, he said, Venerable Sir, we are lay people who enjoy sensual pleasures, dwelling at home in a bed crowded with children, enjoying fine sandalwood, garlands, scents, and unguents. Accepting gold and silver, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma to us in a way that will lead to our welfare and happiness, both in the present life and in the future as well. And so he says, There are four things that lead to the welfare and happiness of a family man in this very life. What for? The accomplishment of persistent effort, the accomplishment of protection, good friendship, and balanced living. And what is the accomplishment of persistent effort? Here, whatever may be the means by which a family man earns his living, whether by farming, trade, cattle raising, archery, or civil service, he is skillful and diligent, he investigates the appropriate means, and he's able to act and arrange everything properly. This is called the accomplishment of persistent effort. In other words, professional competence, right? Some practical skill, at doing what you have chosen to do for a living, you know, being on top of it, being good at it. And what is the accomplishment of protection? Here a family man sets up protection and guard over the wealth acquired by striving, amassed by strength of arms, earned by sweat of brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained thinking. How can I keep kings and bandits from taking this away, fire from burning it, floods from sweeping it off, and unloved heirs from taking it? This is called the accomplishment of protection. And what is good friendship? Here, in whatever village or town a family man dwells, he associates with householders or their sons, whether young or old, who are of mature virtue, accomplished in faith, moral discipline, generosity, and wisdom. He converses with them and engages in discussion with them. He emulates them in regard to their accomplishment in faith, moral discipline, generosity, and wisdom. This is called good friendship. So again, this theme of you know who you're hanging out with uh, is really important. And what is balanced living? Here a family man knows his income and expenditures and leads a balanced life, neither extravagant nor miserly. So his income exceeds his expenditures rather than the reverse. Just as a goldsmith or his apprentice holding up a scale knows, by so much it's dipped down, by so much it's tipped up, so a family man leads a balanced life. The wealth thus amassed has four sources of dissipation. Womanizing, drunkenness, gambling, and evil friendship. Just as in the case of a tank with four inlets and outlets, if one should close the inlets and open the outlets, there would not be adequate rainfall. A decrease rather than an increase of the water could be expected in the tank. So these four things bring about the dissipation of amassed wealth. He says, you know, the increase of amassed wealth involves abstinence from those things that were just mentioned. And he says, these things together, these four things, lead to a family man's welfare and happiness in the present.
So when they're talking about, you know, what, it, what are the accomplishments that lead to his happiness and welfare in the future life, what for? Accomplishment and faith, faith, moral discipline, generosity, and wisdom. And he goes on and defines what that is. And the last of it being, where he's talking about what it takes to be accomplished in wisdom, he says, A family man possesses the wisdom that sees into the arising and passing away of phenomenon, that is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. In this way, a family man is accomplished in wisdom, which certainly seems to suggest meditation, right? This one, I think, is uh, quite interesting, too. Where he's talking about the proper use of wealth. Very pertinent uh, topic for our culture. The Blessed One uh, addresses the householder, Anathapindika. With the wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained. And that's always the phrase, righteous wealth righteously gained. Not a big stack of money extracted from somebody else's well-being. Righteous wealth righteously gained. The noble disciple undertakes four worthy deeds. What for? With the wealth thus gains, he makes himself happy and pleased and properly maintains himself in happiness. He makes his parents happy and pleased and properly maintains them in happiness. He makes his wife and children, his slaves, workers, and servants happy and pleased and properly maintains them in happiness. He makes his friends and colleagues happy and pleased and properly maintains them in happiness. This is the first case of wealth gone to good use fruitfully applied and used for a worthy cause. So he's talking about going beyond just providing necessities, right? It seems to imply uh, a kind of generosity in terms of how uh, resources are used. Or as he was saying earlier, uh, when he was saying how not to be, not miserly. Then he talks about um, uh, making provisions against losses that might arise on account of fires and floods and that kind of things, and securing wealth. And then he talks about um, uh, wealth thus gained, making five kinds of offerings to relatives, guests, ancestors, the king, and Davis. <laughs> and he talks about using wealth thus gained to make an offering of alms to ascetics and Brahmins who refrain from vanity and negligence, who are settled in patience and gentleness, devoted to taming themselves, calming themselves, and attaining nibbana. An offering that is heavily, heavenly, resulting in happiness, conducive to heaven. And these are the four. For anyone whose wealth is expended on other things apart from these, that wealth is said to have gone to waste, to have been squandered. 
So it's kind of targeted spending, right? But not too narrow, kind of broad. Makes himself happy and pleased and properly maintains himself in happiness. The middle path, just enoughness. And the last two um, things I'll read to you tonight have to do with what you might call social teachings. And the first of these is uh, addresses the fact that the spiritual life is filled with uh, mutual support and obligation. I guess would be the easiest way to, to say it. And the, the setting here is uh, the Blessed One was uh, dwelling at the bamboo grove in the squirrel sanctuary. So you might think you're in the squirrel sanctuary here. And then uh, Sigalaka, the householder's son, got up early and was paying homage in the different directions, east, south, west, north, nadir, and zenith. All right, so he, this individual that the Buddha is talking to was doing some sort of ritual that was part of the religious uh, observance of the time. Right, that was part of being a good human to be doing this kind of thing. And the Buddha did, as he, he often did in these kind of situations, kind of uh, took something from what the existing practice was that someone uh, was doing, you know, that they had learned to do, that had some element in it that he saw could be uh, hooked onto and used in a way that was uh, redirected or uh, held in a larger context. So the Buddha got up and got dressed and went into town for alms. And then seeing this individual, Sigalaka, paying homage in the different directions, he said, Householder's son, why have you got up early to pay homage to the different directions? And this uh, young man said, uh, Sir, my father, when he was dying, told me to do so. And so out of respect for my father's words, which I revere, honor, and hold sacred, I've got to get up early to pay homage in this way to the six directions. And the Buddha says, but householder son, that's not the right way to pay homage to the six directions according to the noble one's discipline. So the son asks for instruction about what is the right way to do it. And then the Buddha gives him the the instructions. And he says... uh, And how, householder son, does the noble disciple protect the six directions? These six things are to be regarded as the six directions. The east denotes mother and father. The south denotes teachers. The west denotes wife and children. The north denotes friends and companions. The nadir denotes servants, workers, and helpers. The zenith denotes ascetics and brahmins. There are five ways in which a son should minister to his mother and father as the eastern direction, he should think. Having been supported by them, I will support them. I'll perform their duties for them. I will keep up the family tradition. I'll be worthy of my heritage. After their deaths, I'll distribute gifts on their behalf. And there are five ways in which the parents, so ministered to by their son as the eastern direction, will reciprocate. They'll restrain him from evil, support him in doing good, teach him some skill, find him a suitable wife, and in due time hand over his inheritance. 
In this way, the eastern direction is covered, making it at peace and free from fear. There are five ways in which pupils should minister to their teachers as the southern direction, by rising to greet them, by waiting on them, by being attentive, by serving them, by mastering the skills they teach. And there are five ways in which their teachers, thus ministered to them too by their pupils as the southern direction, will reciprocate. They'll give thorough instruction, making sure they have grasped what they should have duly grasped. Give them a thorough grounding in all skills. Recommend them to their friends and colleagues and provide them with security in all directions. In this way, the southern direction is covered, making it at peace and free from fear. There are five ways in which a husband should minister to his wife as the western direction, by honoring her, by not disparaging her, by not being unfaithful to her, by giving authority to her, by providing her with adornments. And there are five ways in which a wife thus ministered to by her husband as the western direction will reciprocate, by being proper, by properly organizing her work, by being kind to the servants, by not being unfaithful, by protecting stores, and by being skillful and diligent in all she has to do. In this way, the western direction is covered, making it at peace and free from fear. There are five ways in which a man should minister to his friends and companions as the northern direction, by gifts, by kindly words, by looking after their welfare, by treating them like himself, and by keeping his word. And there are five ways in which friends and companions thus ministered to by a man as the northern direction will reciprocate by looking after him when he is inattentive, by looking after his property when he is inattentive, by being a refuge when he is afraid, by not deserting him when he is in trouble, and by showing concern for his children. In this way, the northern direction is covered, making it at peace and free from fear. There are five ways in which a master should minister to his servants and workers as the nadir, by arranging their work according to their strength, by supplying them with food and wages, by looking after them when they are ill, by sharing special delicacies with them, and by letting them off work at the right time. And there are five ways in which servants and workers thus ministered to by their master as the nadir will reciprocate. They will get up before him, go to bed after him, take only what they are given, do their work properly, and be bearers of his praise and good repute. In this way the nadir is covered, making it at peace and free from fear. There are five ways in which a man should minister to ascetics and brahmins as the zenith, by kindliness and body deeds, speech and thought, by keeping open house for them and by supplying their bodily needs. And the ascetics and brahmins thus ministered to by him as the zenith will reciprocate in five ways. They'll restrain him from evil, encourage him to do good, be benevolently compassionate towards him, teach him what is not heard, and point out to him the way to heaven. In this way, the zenith is covered, making it at peace and free from fear. Right. So his uh, view of reality is not a standalone, lone ranger kind of world. Right. He sees people clearly as embedded in a network of relationships with having um, uh, responsibilities to give and legitimate expectations about how those should be reciprocated. 
So I'll just close with the, the last one. Uh, and the point being made uh, with this one is that our peace and tranquility is related to the well-being of others. talking about uh, a different form of dependent arising. And this is called bringing tranquility to the land. Sitting to one side, the Brahman, Kutadanta, addressed the Blessed One. Master, I've heard that you understand how to conduct successfully the triple sacrifice with its 16 requisites. Now, I don't understand all this, but I want to make a big sacrifice. It would be good if you would explain it to me. Right? So he's approaching him, the Buddha, with a, a question about basically how to do a right and ritual. How to do some sort of ritualistic sacrifice the right way to get presumably the right outcome. So he says, listen, Brahman, pay attention, I'll explain And he says, Brahman, once upon a time there was a king. He was rich of great wealth and resources with an abundance of gold and silver, of possessions and requisites, of money and money's worth, with a full treasury and granary. And when the king was reflecting in private, the thought came to him, I've acquired extensive wealth in human terms. I occupy a wide extent of land which I have conquered. Let me now make a great sacrifice that would be to my benefit and happiness for a long time. And calling his chaplain, he told him his thought. I want to make a great sacrifice. Instruct me, venerable sir, how this may be to my lasting benefit and happiness. And the chaplain replied, Your majesty's country is beset by thieves. It's ravaged. Village and towns are being destroyed. The countryside is infested with brigands. If your majesty were to tax this, tax this region, that would be the wrong thing to do. Suppose your majesty were to think, I will get rid of this plague of robbers by executions and imprisonments, or by confiscation, threats, and banishment. The plague would not be properly ended. Those who survived would later harm your majesty's realm. However, with this plan you can completely elimin- eliminate the plague. To those in the kingdom who are engaged in cultivating crops and raising cattle, let your majesty distribute grain and fodder. To those in trade, give capital. To those in government service, assign proper living wages. Then those people, being intent on their own occupations, will not harm the kingdom. Your majesty's revenues will be great, the land will be tranquil and not be set by thieves, and the people with joy in their hearts, playing with their children, will dwell in open houses." And saying, so be it, the king accepted the chaplain's advice. He gave grain and fodder to those engaged in cultivating crops and raising cattle, capital to those in trade, proper living wages to those in government service. And then those people, being intent on their own occupations, did not harm the kingdom. The king's revenues became great, the land was tranquil and not beset by thieves. And the people with joy in their hearts, playing with their children, dwelled in open houses." Okay. So, not a narrow mind, right? A very vast view of human well-being and what can be undertaken in order to promote it.
promote it. And so, you know, just to close tonight, open your, open your uh, minds wide to the applicability of this Buddha Dharma to your life. It's not all at the end of your nose. You know, it's very contextual. There are many different ways to practice uh, this once you leave here for your own happiness and well-being and that of others. So, um, may the commitment to practice and all the dimensions of your life arise. And may you have the stamina and endurance and joy and creativity to apply these teachings. May our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere on the ultimate and relative planes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.